Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 198 of the podcast for May 15th, 2014. My guest today is Harry Kenworthy. We're going to be talking about his work bringing lean into local and state governments. And uh, we had a really great conversation here that touches uh, first on the influence of the great Dr. W. Edwards Deming on uh, his work and career and many other concepts that might be of interest, even if you're not particularly interested in lean government and the work that's happening there. I mean, uh, a lot of us are, um, if you will, customers of government services. Uh, we're uh, taxpayers, and I think we all have an interest in uh, government doing high quality work, reducing waiting times, doing so at minimal cost. And it's great that Harry is leading a lot of this work um, across the U.S. Uh, he's the principal and manager of uh, the firm Quality and Productivity Improvement Center. You can find their um, website at leangovcenter.com. And uh, he was one of the first practitioners to apply lean in the government sector back in the mid-1990s. So I hope you enjoy the episode and um, you can read more about Harry at uh, leanblog.org slash 198. You can find a link to his website. You can find a, a video that was on YouTube of him giving a presentation uh, to a group at the state of Washington, which has been, I think, uh, one of the national leaders in uh, applying lean thinking into government. So again, that's leanblog.org slash 198. You can find all past episodes at leanpodcast.org or the uh, slightly shorter, maybe leaner address of leancast.org. Thanks for listening. Harry, hi. Thanks for joining us and being a guest on the podcast today. Hey, great to be along with you, Mark. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad we can talk. Uh, we've, we've, we've talked before about lean government. We, uh, we have the opportunity to record it this time and share it with uh, some other people. So I'm excited about that. Um, can, can, we're going to talk about that work you're doing today, but can you start off uh, telling the listeners kind of about your background, how you first got introduced to lean in general? Yeah, I think uh, I probably would take it back to Dr. Deming, although that was more on the TQM side. Certainly a lot of Deming's principles still really uh, resonate in lean. And I was involved with a seminar with Dr. Deming in 1980, which is one of his four-day seminars. And it resonated with me what he was talking about in terms of the role of management and management really being responsible for the system. 85 90% of it was the management responsibility and then the people work in the system and uh, part of his red beat experiment was of course putting people in a bad process no matter what they did they couldn't make the process better because the process would win every time and then from there I, I did several two-day sessions that MIT set up back in around 1983 through 1985 where Dr. Deming would talk for one day on his 14 points, and then several industry folks would come in on the second day, and I was part of that cast and speak for about an hour, hour and a half on how some of Deming's principles impacted the business I was running, which was a manufacturing company at the time. And then I think it accelerated more in 1983-84, we set up a joint venture in Nagoya, Japan, with a company that was a major supplier to Toyota. So, and I was a division manager at the time of a business that was part of the joint venture. So, getting over to Japan, 
uh, seeing what the JV operation was doing and the parent company, and then also getting involved more so with uh, what was Toyota doing and Toyota expecting uh, was a really great experience. Um, from there, Deming kind of hooked me into the Japanese Union of Scientists and Engineers. Those were the folks that kind of managed the Deming Prize throughout Japan. So every time I was in Japan, I was able to go to one of the Deming Prize winning companies also and see what they were doing. Uh, and also tied in with Richard Schoenberger, I got a lot of our people to start really going to classes to learn more about this, including some of our union presidents, so they would get involved. And Schoenberger was doing his world-class manufacturing work back in the 80s and early 90s, and a lot of that had to do with lean in a very, uh, I think, preliminary form. So I, I viewed Schoenberger as one of the forerunners in my estimation from a U.S. standpoint before Womack in terms of presenting uh, lean concepts and principles to organizations in the U.S. So uh, from there, I was running multiple uh, you know, operations both in the U.S. and overseas, and we started you know, integrating the lean principles throughout those operations. Yeah, and so you've got yeah a lot of experience through these these different, um, if you will, eras of, of lean from, from Dr. Deming and TQM to just in time, and and now what people have been calling lean. Yeah, I'm I'm really uh, I'm I'm jealous that you had that opportunity to um, take Dr. Deming's class and work with him. My dad, in uh, I think it was 1987 or so at General Motors, was able to take uh, Dr. Deming's four day seminar. And uh, kind of you know, long story short, that was some of my first exposure uh, to these ideas, even while I was still at home with them. So um, do, you, do you have any other reflections about that, that time that you had with Dr. Deming and, and what you learned? Well, I, I think the, you know, his, his major thrust was, you know, the system is driven by management and leadership. They set up the system mm -hmm. and the employees work in it. It's kind of a repeat of what I mentioned earlier, but it's, it's so, it's so critical that, you know, the way the processes are and everything is how management establishes them. And unless uh, we're going to go out there and rework those and do things differently upside down in terms of getting employee inputs, which Lean would be addressing, then the systems that we're stuck with, the people are, are working in them, and, and that's the way it is. I think the quote that stuck with me the most with Dr. Deming, which uh, I always thought it was a great quote, is he said, you either got to change management or you got to change management. Yeah. And, uh, you know, very relevant. I think the Toyota experience in Numi was that way, too. Yeah. You know, John Shook and all the other guys that were out there. And that, you know, they once they went into that operation in California and Fremont that was just in terrible shape, the worst of all GM, and then in a reasonably short period of time did a total turnaround with the same UAW workforce that was there. And, and the message was just about everybody at the management level got changed out. And either that or retrained by a Toyota in Japan, uh, just send a you know just a huge message on, you know either folks got to get on board and get it, or at some point in time, you know they got to understand that this is the direction we're moving in. If they feel like, uh, well, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be you know I'm I'm used to being a supervisor, or a leader that tells people what to do, and yeah. I possess all the knowledge. Um, then you gotta do something about those folks because they can contaminate the whole thing. Yeah, and we we see 
that problem. Uh, I see that in healthcare, people who want to be the boss. Um, well, in my early experiences at General Motors in the mid 90s, we had a uh, the second plant manager that I worked for was one of the first GM people at NUMI. And so he brought that experience into our plant and stood up in front of, you know, 800 employees, hourly and salary alike, and said, point blank, you know, the problem is not the workers. The problem is not you. The problem is the management system. And we're going to succeed together. And I think that's a, a very powerful message that that often you know, we often don't hear, you know, I think people, leaders say, okay, well, lean, we're going to run a bunch of projects, we're going to fix the people, and so they can do their work more efficiently. And and I think we would agree that misses the point, right? Well, that, that's pretty unusual, because uh, most of the GM didn't take a heck of a lot away from the NUMI experience. And in fact, most mm -hmm. of the other facilities uh, basically ignored it. Yeah. And so, you know, Larry, Larry Spiegel, that plant manager, I, th I think it, he was unique, and it, it was very powerful because you know management never talked that way before he came in everything was always the workers fault when you know i could see very clearly a lot of those problems were 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 driven by the system not letting people do what they needed to do to produce quality and have pride yeah. in their pride in their work so maybe let's transition i don't know if this is the smoothest of transitions into to talking about lean and government if if some of those same dynamics are there or maybe you can we we can just reset and um, I'm curious to hear maybe more broadly how and when you first started applying uh, lean in government. Yeah, I mean, yeah, one of the things you brought up about the experience at GM I, I just wanted to touch on is, mm -hmm. you know, my exposure and supervision was I was an engineer out of school for one year and then I got thrust into a supervisory role and, and worked the shop floor and, and got to talk to people and understand all the things they were seeing out there and doing and we made a lot of changes. So that kind of Gemba experience has been with me for, you know, a long time. It's, you know, walking the shop floor, whether it's the shop floor in a manufacturing facility or the shop floor in a, in a government uh, type of operation. So how I got into government, we were doing some, when I was at Rogers still as a vice president, we were doing some pro bono work helping out in Connecticut government. And I was one of the founders of the Connecticut Quality Council, which was, back around 1990, still in the TQM kind of world. Mm -hmm. And part of that was several state agencies, so we were actually doing some volunteer work to help them out. Uh, we also did some volunteer work out to help out a couple uh, school systems. This is K through 12 systems and applying some of the principles there. And that kind of led to, you know, I wound up being in charge of Wing Six Sigma worldwide for our corporation when I got uh, promoted to Vice President of Manufacturing Worldwide around 2000. And we partnered up with GE and, and developed all those principles internally in the training materials. So all the master black belts I trained and they reported to me. And then I left the corporate world in 2004. Uh, stock options were great and it allowed me financial freedom. So part of my strategy coming out of there was to give back on a pro bono basis and, and wound up help, helping a city, it was the city of Hartford, Connecticut, for a couple of years of just donating services and applying lean, primarily lean, a little bit of Six Sigma, but primarily lean to, to help out the city. And we worked on a lot of different processes there. Um, but I guess I learned through that is by you know, providing pro bono time, folks don't necessarily take it seriously. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And and as such, we had some successes there, but there was so much more that could have been done. And our consulting practice was 
still focused heavily on the manufacturing side. And then in 2008, 2009, with the financial crisis, uh, we really started to see a kick up in intensity on the government side, especially at cities and state agencies, states, because they have to balance their budget. The federal government is still in the in the role of it doesn't matter. We'll just you know kind of print the money we need and mm-hmm. not have to worry about balancing the budget. But uh, so the thrust there became more cities and agencies, and, and today probably about 95% or more of the business that we're involved with and the clients that we're involved with are in government. So when when people approach you or when, when you talk to them and, and they have some sort of interest in lean, um, what, what are their goals? I mean, what, what are the main things that they are looking to address uh, through lean? Or, you know, do they have the right goals, do you end up having to sort of try to help them shape those goals? How's that discussion go? I think it's on a, a much broader basis. It's in a uh, it's in a degree of how much financial trouble they're in. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I guess primary goal number one is survival and, and not hitting bankruptcies like Detroit or Stockton, California, or Central Falls, Rhode Island, those types of things. Um, and it's obviously getting greater you know, capacity for better service and also, you know, to take out their waste and reduce their cost. So, you know, Lane does that. And when you initially, you know, connect with these folks, it almost seems like you're selling snake oil. How can, how can this do everything like those things? But in reality, uh, when we put them through some training and everything, they, they kind of understand that. It's, we, we, as far as goals, I mean, normally we're doing demonstration projects. That's the phase we start with, which is a couple of days of training and then usually uh, two Kaizen events, uh, which are the three- to five-day full-time big project type of things. But that gets them to better understand uh, what Lean can do and, and the implications. And, and we want them to move into a cultural implementation rather than just running Kaizen events all the time. Right. Now, do do you think um, you know if people are asking you to do events? Where, where I mean, this is a common problem, I think, in other industries. How, how have they gotten the idea that that lean is really just about these projects, or how, how does that progression? Yeah, I go? think you know, I think that's a really uh, mis you know it's a real heavy misunderstanding out there. I mean, we know agencies have been using the same consultant for like six years. And the consultant comes in for, you know, once every three months and runs, you know, two or three Kaizen events. And that's, you know, I I guess that's certainly great for the consultant from a revenue stream standpoint. But as far as the client goes, the lack of transfer of knowledge and internal ownership and cultural um, overhaul just gets kind of left by the wayside. So, but you see a lot of that, you know, on our website, uh, you can tie into a lot of different government initiatives throughout the country on their websites. And what you see in there is a lot of Kaizen events. So we look at, you know, the major Kaizen events is probably being, I don't know. I mean, if you were doing, uh, if you could look at like one of the agencies we work with in the course of a year, this is a state agency. They did like six Kaizen events with us and about, you know, 150 improvement events, type of events. Now, what we we kind of characterize into several different areas. One is the Kaizen. Uh, two is what we call as a business process improvement. So those are the things that you can, you know, once you start mining some of your data and find out how you're doing. And a lot of times in government, they just don't know how they're doing. I mean, when you ask, well, how you doing? The, the general answer you get is a blank stare or, <laughs> or we don't know. Right. 
you got to dig into that. Once you get that data, you can start making some improvements without going into a Kaizen. You get like a, a bunch of aha moments and discoveries. Uh, another aspect we look at is benchmarking. And government has a unique position from a benchmarking standpoint in that, I mean, if I was running a manufacturing company, you know, it's pretty hard for me to contact my top competitors and say, hey, tell me how you're doing this <laughs> stuff because I want to get better. Right. It just doesn't work that way. But in a government standpoint, there is no competition. I mean, the mayor or city manager of a city, he's it or she's it. There's not two or three of them competing for the same business. So it's it's a lot more open environment where you can go out and talk to other entities and you can go through your, you know, the professional organizations that they belong to, like International City Management Organization. Uh, International City County Management Association or the Government Financial Officers Association or National Governor Association and Mayor's Association. So there's a lot of associations that folks can, you know, tap into and ask, you know, geez, I'm working on this process or I have problems in this area. How have you handled it? So that's a real advantage of government to be able to do that. Now, that being said, the other aspect of that is, it's foreign territory for people to think about benchmarking when they're in government. A lot of people, you know, they'll be pounding away trying to make a process better when if they tapped into three or four cities in their own state, they'd find out that some of the stuff they're working on they don't even need to do. It's not even required. So so is, is what they learn there, instead of making that that work more efficient, they should sometimes stop doing something altogether? Yeah, you can you can find out that, you know, what happens when you get into, for example, laws and mandates and stuff like that, um, you know, people have, here's a law that went into effect, and then you get an interpretation of that law, and then over, you know, several years, there's multiple people that come into that particular part of the business or the city and, or the state agency, and they're working in that, and they got transfer of knowledge kind of, you know, verbally through the other person that was doing it. And over time, it morphs into something significantly different than, than what it was intended for. So one of the things we always look for to start with when we're working with our clients is, you know, okay, what are the laws and mandates that you really have to, you know, you have to do? And and if they tell us, here's what we have to do, we'll always say, well, you know, let's make sure, let's look at the law and make sure that's what we have to do. And a lot of times when that's done, that's not the case. You know, what it got morphed into is not what it should have been. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times you can eliminate stuff there. But in reality, yeah, uh, you know, it's, I always, what we, we provide, our coaching is, you know, before you start improving a process, just understand where other people are at, other organizations are at in government, and, and get yourself a really good best practices baseline, and then work on stuff from there, because there's, you know, we've seen multiple occasions where organizations, government organizations, don't tap into other knowledge, and then they're working their, their butt off to improve something, and you look at it and you say, you don't even need to do that anymore. Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of time is, um, I mean, you know, generally in Lean, we would say, you know, value is defined by the customer. And, and if we are doing work that's just been out of habit, we always do it this way, and we find out, well, you know, gosh, that's, that's not something the customer values, it's not something that they will pay for. Um, what, tell me about the dynamics in, in government of, of, you know, does the word customer gets, get used? What, what does that mean in the context of, 
uh, lean in government. Sounds like what you're saying. Sometimes we do things because the law says we have to, which maybe that's required waste. Um, but but you know, t t tell us more about the idea of value and and customer in government. Well, I think you know, from a customer standpoint, it's really uh, it's really important to understand who's coming in. We uh, once again, we encourage you know our, our folks that we work with in government to you know what is the first experience you know I use the old Jerry Maguire thing we had you had us at hello well what does hello look like and you know if I come into the website and I need need to file a complaint about something I mean we're working with the Public Utilities Commission right now where if you wanted to we always come in and say hey I'm I'm a customer from the outside how do I get this done easily and you realize you got to go through six computer screens, and it's very difficult to find out even where the right areas are to click to get to the form to fill out to send in on the complaint. And then you wonder why your call center is slammed with a whole bunch of questions because <laughs> folks just don't have the patience or can't even figure out how to do that. Mm -hmm. So let's let's just call these guys up and 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 start dealing with it, the answers that way as opposed to maybe easier ways, but. You know, what's the customer experience when they walk in the door? You know, we're big advocates of what we call one-stop shopping. You know, you come in the door and, and just you want to be able to meet with one person who can satisfy all your needs and get out of there. There were some great studies done up in Ontario, Canada, where they surveyed a lot of the population to get what the customer needs were. And, and those needs are, you know, they're pretty straightforward. They're not anything exotic. Uh, they want to have people, you know, deal with people that can make decisions that can be, you know, hopefully one stop in terms of the process. Uh, you know, that folks are empowered, uh, they're friendly to customers. So the customer needs are, you know, pretty well um, defined out there. And then, of course, you can always do focus group type of surveys. Uh, you can do other surveys, uh, exit surveys as people are leaving a particular um, function within the city. You can help fill out forms, things of that nature. But the main thing is we try and get to get the government folks that we work with to kind of put the hat on a different way and, and say, I'm the customer coming in. Mm -hmm. How easy it is, it is it for me to deal with you? Right. So, I mean, when, when you talk about one-stop shopping, I can imagine there's a lot of, um, you know, silos, functional silos, departmental silos. Uh are there applications of the idea of uh, of a value stream? Uh, are, are there opportunities, generally that involve um, you know reorganizing or cross training or, or yeah? How how, how do those uh, one stop shops get created? I would think every everything that you we know about in terms of lean is applicable into government. Uh, I haven't seen anything that isn't applicable. So I think once. And you know this. I mean, once you get the people involved at the site, actively engaged, understanding the value stream, uh, taking a look at the processes, taking a look at what's value added, what's what's waste, and uh, starting to work on the process to move from a get a good current state to start with and move to a future state, um, because there's so much and with a good cross-functional group of people. Uh, there's so much active engagement and ownership at that stage that the ability to do some things differently and set up the one-stop shop, for example. And in some cases you can't, but I mean, if you've got a situation where you're concerned about financial fraud, you know, that only one stop, you know, the person would be taking the money in, you might have to have a check and balance there. But you certainly don't need five check and balances. Mm -hmm. 
going through all that process to understand that and, and having that act, active involvement engagement kind of really tears down a lot of the barriers for the functional silo type activity. Yeah. Well, there's uh, you know some stuff happening here in San Antonio. I, I don't know if it's being driven by quote unquote lean, but there's, you know, there's two city initiatives. One is called uh, Cafe College and there's a new one called Cafe Commerce. And you know, I'm particularly interested in Cafe Commerce as as an entrepreneur, and the idea of of both of these cafes is to create a one stop shop for kids that are looking for uh, college assistance and coaching. And the Cafe Commerce is designed to be kind of a single resource if somebody wants to start a business of what paperwork, what what forms, and instead of having to navigate different departments, um, you know, trying to create that that one stop shop. I mean that. If it's not being driven by lean, at least sounds you know very familiar and seems like it would be really helpful. Yeah, I mean we just we just want to you know we use a graphic that takes them from you know large batches of paper going from step to step in the process throughout the particular site to uh, you know get it down to one piece flow, get it down to one person at one desk that can handle the whole thing. And obviously, the more you drive it that way, it just it makes things a heck of a lot faster. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious to dig a little bit more into when you talk about the lack of competition. I mean, I guess we, we could always move from San Antonio to a neighboring city if we weren't happy with um, city services or, or taxes. But, um, you know, I imagine when you talk about these one-stop shops and improving service, if we're making things easier, we're, we're reducing lead times or reducing turnaround times. What, what incentive do you find? Is it intrinsic motivation and pride in work that that leads to people wanting to improve processes when, when they are, like you say, in a, a competition-free environment? Well, I think it's, it's uh, very similar to the private sector in that it, you know, it, it really depends on really having good leadership. Mm-hmm. So if you have people that get it, I mean, we're working with a city now where the mayor's been in office for 20-plus years, and the city's in really good shape, and the guy... He has enough foresight to understand that, you know, they could be in a much better shape. And, oh, by the way, if they get better. Now, the competition here is if you get better in, say, licensing and and getting businesses up and running a lot quicker with a lot less red tape and everything, then in that sense, you're competitive with your surrounding cities Mm -hmm. in the area. You can bring in business. If if you're a lot more business-friendly environment and you're bringing in businesses and businesses want to be there, and that certainly expands your tax rolls, it expands the jobs there, it helps out, you know, the overall economy of your particular city. And mm-hmm. there are folks that get that, I mean, and there are other folks that are just, uh, I mean, we see other cities right now that are just in a, they're in a financial spiral down a big dark hole, and there's just no way out of it because they just don't get it. And... Um... It seems like not getting it would be would be a big challenge. I mean, what what are some of the biggest uh, challenges or, or surprises that you've seen? You know, kind of transitioning as as an outsider now working in government. Well, I, I think the you know you have uh, what we call politics in any kind of organization, but you have, I mean, in government you have politics and you have politics. <laughs> so you really have. Um, you know, what are the things that can be done for the greater good? And do you have the political will to do things? And I got a, a bunch of goofy sayings, but one of them is a lot of times political will just ain't willing. Mm-hmm. So you can do, uh, I, I'll give you an example. I won't mention the city, but the city came up with, uh, 
you know, the declining population. They've got three three school systems or three school buildings in the city, and they they've made a determination that in order to save money and everything, and you know, it's basically the concept of declining sales. In other words, less students that we should consolidate the three schools into two and therefore get a lot of economies out of it, help out our budget and tax spaces and all that stuff. Well, that was going along fine, and everybody's on board with it except for the citizens. <laughs> and they got involved and said, you know, ah, we understand all that, but I don't want my son or my daughter to go over to this part of town. I want them to stay where they are and everything. And, you know, it creates a, a tremendous amount of difficulty. And then you got, you know, what does the Board of Ed member do? Because there is the aspect of I'm getting, you know, do I want to get reelected? So I think, uh, you know, getting people to say what's what are the right things to do for the greater good, and you know, the heck with the electric, uh, the electoral or election process of me getting reelected. But if I do the right, I think the concept if I do the right things for the greater good, they will start to show themselves, and that'll cause me to get reelected anyways. Yeah. So I imagine, you know, like you said, there's politics in any organization. I'm sure in government there's the the bureaucracy and then there's the elected officials. And then you might have politics within the bureaucracy of people who are have have lifelong careers in the city government, regardless of the elected officials and, and their appointees. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you look at uh, back in Al Gore, Bill Clinton's days, I mean, Bill Clinton, uh, he was governor of Arkansas. He understands TQM pretty well. I spoke to one of his conferences like in 1988 and had breakfast with Clinton, and he got it. And he and Gore, when they got in as president of VP, they started as reinventing government. I don't know if you remember mm -hmm. that stuff. Yeah. yeah, and they had some decent momentum going on that. And, you know, it's kind of the general thing that happens in politics. And they get out of office and... You know, another president comes in and, and things get shelved and put off to the side. So there's always that issue out there, too. I mean, you're going to have that. You're going to have turnover in organizations. But to have a mayor, for example, that's been in place for 20 years is, is a great, you know, constancy of purpose, so to speak, versus somebody else that, you know, We've got an agency in Connecticut right now that, uh, you know, one of the commissioners is, you know, he's looking at the governors up for election at the end of this year, and it's a pretty close race. So, you know, if the governor loses, there's a good chance that he'll be knocked out as commissioner. At the same time, there's a one of the cities in Texas is, is looking for uh, a city manager, so uh, he's one of the candidates down there. So you have that thing that's going on, too, and then you have to – get this embedded in the culture it just can't be consultants coming in there has the folks have to understand what's going on we do a lot of training with union leaders too and they get it you know they know how screwed up things are and they know they've got a lot of ideas they've got a lot of frustrations and they just they just can't get the airtime for people to pay attention to what's going on and and so when they see the lean tools and techniques you know it's common sense i mean they, they look at this and you go Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Now that you've presented this to me, I get it. I can look at this stuff differently. I can start thinking about processes and how to make them them better, and come up with a you know understand the plan, do, check, act, problem solving process. Understand the eight waste, and uh, you know we can we can make things a lot better here if uh, we get the leadership at the top to do something about it. So I'm embedding it down. We talk about lean. When we talk about lean leadership, we we think a lean leader is anybody who has people working for them, mm -hmm. or working with them, 
as a team. So you can have a first-line DPW supervisor that has 10 guys, you know, doing trucks. That person's a lean leader, just as well as the city manager of yeah. of Dallas with 13,000 employees is a lean leader. So leadership is not – it can reside anywhere in the organization, and you can get stuff accomplished in lower levels, too, because – I mean, I'll have people come up to me at conferences, and I'm in a big one this coming weekend, and they'll say, well, we really like to do this, but the city manager or the mayor or the commissioner just doesn't get it. And my view is, okay, but, you know, what can you do in your area? I mean, you've got the ability to influence your umbrella, so why not move forward on it? Yeah. And but you do, have this, you, do, you do have this election thing where, you know, somebody gets knocked out of office and then there's a, a new regime that comes in and they figure it's, geez, that stuff couldn't have been good because we wouldn't have done it. And now you're, you're reinventing and moving in a different direction. So that's yeah. a problem. Yeah. I mean, you know, another element of politics, um, you know, would, would, uh, would include the unions. And, and there's a lot of times where I've seen unions in healthcare in the U S or in Canada, you know, kind of come out against lean or they're being noisy about lean. Um, a lot of what they are, coming out opposed to are things that really don't sound like lean. And it's hard to tell if they are misinformed or if they're fear mongering or if they're reacting to somebody doing lean badly. If they say, well, oh, no, no, no. Lean is about speeding up the work. Well, no, it's about eliminating waste and allowing yep. people to do work that's less frustrating and more fulfilling or, you know, these, these different misnomers about lean, um, I, I think are a challenge. And one of the, um, I think, you know, there's, opportunity to educate the unions because I think ultimately all of this should be very much aligned with with what they and their members want um, but then to make sure management managers aren't doing bad things and, and giving lean a bad name right yeah I, th I think the common theme through what you just talked about is you know I always tell you know the clients that we've got is 15 percent of tools and techniques 85 percent of the organization the culture which consists of the systems, structures, actions, and behaviors that you do. And so, and we, we belong also to uh, Jeff Liker's group, Liker Leadership Institute. But it's it's that whole cultural leader, you know, that's organizational piece that's so, so key. And so when you introduce the thing, like in Saskatchewan, which is that, you know, huge controversy mm -hmm. now with healthcare up there, I don't think they did a good job up front of using things like elevator speeches and stakeholder analysis and, you know, painting the vision and, you know, providing a lot of the supporting background for, you know, why we're moving forward. So, you know, in the absence of doing that, doing a crummy job or not such a great job communicating, then the good old rumor mill mm -hmm. takes in, it kicks in for you anyways. Well, well now, I mean, at this point, you know, the, the union has been complaining that, you know, managers have talking points and the senior leaders are not letting people speak freely. And it's like, oh, this is political. And when there's contract negotiations and other things coming into play, um, this this gets uh, gets complicated. But um, as, as, as we as we wrap up here, um, maybe get a few final thoughts. I'm, I'm curious about Canada because there's a lot of lean healthcare work in Canada, even though their payment system and structures are, are very different than the U.S. The, the principles apply. Do, do you do any work in Canada with cities or, or provinces uh, up there? Not right now, but I'm, I'm doing a uh, basically a workshop this weekend in Minnesota, and there are several Canadian cities there. Uh, I, I had uh, one, one comment I wanted to make sure I got in if I could, mm -hmm. and it has to do with data collection. 
in in the manufacturing sectors, you know, obviously in the manufacturing floor, you got quality, cost, delivery, safety, all sorts of things like that. So there, a lot of those things are tracked pretty well. Even in manufacturing organizations, you get into the admin functions, it's it's not so good. When you get into government, as I mentioned earlier, uh, we always ask folks, you know, how are you doing? And, and the answer we get is we don't know. And, and just to start doing some initial data mining, you know, principles such as Pareto analysis and, and checklists and concentration diagrams, very simple data collection tools that you can introduce at the, you know, right at the worker level, folks that are working in the process and start collecting data for what's going on. And they, they look at, you know, easy checklists where you're just making marks on the sheet. And you look at what's going on, and you go, oh, my God, I didn't realize that. You know, yeah. And now you got your employees engaged. They're, not only are they taking the data, but they're seeing what the data is telling them. And they're starting to understand, you know, if we could change this, this, and this, this would make this thing a lot better. So they're now, by virtue of collecting data, getting into root cause analysis and coming up themselves with countermeasures. And that is so, so powerful. And, and we always tell our clients, if you can get if you can get more of the data collection going on and, and right at the grassroots level, I'm saying any organization, even any admin functions, and there's some very simple tools to use there, no IT support required. I mean, you can get tremendous leverage on understanding what's going on. Yeah, well, and it seems like that's a kind of you know micro example of the type of culture change. Um, that we're trying to get to with Lean of, of, of using data, understanding the customer, making things work more smoothly, engaging people in the Kaizen and the improvement process. I mean, these are all very familiar Lean concepts and it seems like some really good things to uh, to bring into health, into government. So um, I think we'll, we'll, we'll have to wrap up for now, but um, Harry, if you can remind people about how they can find you online and, and websites and have, yeah, how we have a web, it's, uh, it's just go to www dot lean l e a n gov g o v center c e n t e r dot com that's all one word and on the site there's a lot of information on lean government but also within the projects tab you can actually link into other websites throughout the country that we continuously vet out both at the state level and, and there's quite a, there's several good state initiatives throughout the country we have four master contracts with states right now and then there's cities in there also that you can tap into that are doing good work in lean and see their projects and activities. So there's a lot of stuff in there. Well, good. Well, I encourage people to go check out the website. I'll link to it on the uh, the show page of this episode, of course. And uh, again, our guest has been Harry Kenworthy. Uh, Harry, thanks so much for joining us here today. Hey, Mark. Great talking to you. Thanks. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.